Hello everyone, you are on Fitness Logic Radio. I am your host, Nevin Barnett, and today I'm super excited to have Greg Knuckles on the show. I have been following Greg's work for close to a decade now, and it's really someone I look up to in the fitness industry. We speak about cooking, which is essential for achieving your physique goals, about his new application, Macrofactor, about eccentric training, about his strength goals in relationship to his weight cut, and much more. I had such a good time speaking with Greg that I am sure you will absolutely love this episode and gain some knowledge that will help you in your endeavors. On this podcast, I guide you out of frustration by explaining how your body actually works so you can get and live in the body you've always dreamed of. Enjoy. Hello, Greg. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? Thank you so much for joining me on this podcast. So Greg and I have been really good friends since a long time. It's just a Greg didn't know about it because it's kind of a one-sided uh, <laughs> friendship. This is literally how I approached Greg through Instagram. Actually, I told him that I was a huge fan of his work and I really wanted to have a discussion with him. So um, I think most of my listeners know you by now. Uh, you have been producing extremely interesting articles, first on strength theory and now on Stronger by Science. Uh, we can find you all over YouTube. Uh, you are a special temporary guest uh, on the Stronger by Science podcast. So my first question is, actually, when are you going to make the effort to become a permanent guest on the Stronger by Science podcast? Uh, pr probably never. Um, yeah, I mean, I as a general rule, I try to only um, permanently shackle myself to uh, high quality media uh, franchises and you know I the the stronger by science podcast isn't quite up to my standards so you know whenever too amateur for you right? yeah whenever they need my talents to uh, <laughs> kind of help the show along I, I'm happy to help them out but uh, no it's it's not it's not quite up to my standards yet so jokes aside um, so people. Uh, who know you are aware that you do a lot. Uh, you have a lot of articles that you post which are thorough, like with lots of research. I know it takes a lot of time because I do it myself sometimes. Uh, you also have the podcast. You have mass, uh, mass uh, research review. Uh, do you still coach people one-to-one? -one? I, I do. Um, certainly a smaller coaching roster than I used to have, but I, I do still coach a few people. And you're also like a private full-time chef? Uh, always uh, uh, interesting to see what you're doing. <laughs> just, just for my wife. All right, Th those bread buns that you posted the other day looked like absolutely insane. I, I don't know how you pulled that out, dude. I'm, I'm excited about that. I, I think, uh, I think I'm very close to cracking the code of protein bread. And when I get there, I'm never, I'm never eating a protein bar again. Um, the casein, you know, that's the key. Yeah, ex exactly. If if instead of grabbing a protein bar, I could just eat like two dinner rolls, perfect, perfect. I I think everyone who goes on a kind of a diet, we're always trying to make stuff that we like, but with a you know calorie mm -hmm. friendly approach and macronutrient breakdown approach. And it's funny because being in the kitchen myself a lot because I actually enjoy cooking, so I'm always super excited when you're sharing tips about cooking because you actually know your way around the kitchen and it, it's it's funny because a lot of people use whey protein and they don't realize mm -hmm. that you have so much more 
flexibility in using either a combination of whey and uh, casein or just casein be depending on what you're trying to achieve. But yeah, the, 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 the final result between whey and casein is completely different and you can't really use them in the same way. I think for dry, like if you're replacing flour, whey is interesting. If you want to get a bit more moist and a bit more, yeah, closer to something that is actually more enjoyable most of the time, but it gets sticky and everything. So it's it's a trade-off. Yeah, I, I think... Um... I think that casein works a lot better for most baking applications, just because uh, I should know the science of this. I don't. <laughs> I don't really care that much. Um, but but when you heat whey, it has a tendency to go grainy. Um, and, and I also just think plain whey has a somewhat offensive flavor. Like, it's, it's not that bad, but it's not great, and you've got to do more work to cover it up. Uh, casein hydrates really, really well, and it will maintain a more tender texture when it's cooked uh, and hold on to water really well. So if you're trying to make some sort of relatively moist baked good, um, casein behaves really well. And it also has a very subtle flavor. Um, so, you know, if, if you just made a protein shake that was 100% unflavored casein in water and milk, it's not going to taste great. But as soon as you get pretty much any flavor, like any other flavors going on, even if it's, you know, even if it's just like bread flour, uh, it, it masks the casein flavor quite well. And, and you don't have to do nearly as much work to cover it up. I think people get scared about the casein because if you just mix it in a shaker bottle, the whey does dissolve better in water and you don't have this grainy aspect that you have with casein when you're just drinking it in water. Whereas when you cook it, it's actually, as you said, like not not the same at all yeah yeah the the difference is like when generally for baking you don't want it to go into solution like you want it to um you know you want it to behave the same way flour does where you add water to it it absorbs the water it hydrates it gets tacky you can form a dough um like i i think for a lot of uh a lot of baked goods you can you can probably sub out probably up to a third of the flour with casein and not change the recipe otherwise, or possibly just add a little bit more water because casein does generally accept a little bit more water than flour does. Um, or like another egg or something if you're making like brownies or something that doesn't have water in it. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's it, it behaves really well if you're, if you're trying to make, uh, if you're trying to up the protein content of baked goods. For more savory foods, here's my number one hack that everyone should know. Invest in MSG. Like, people are afraid of MSG. Um, and, and the thing is, like, if you're trying to make something, like, if you're trying to make a meat dish that's relatively macro-friendly, the issue you're, you're going to run into is fat content, right? Like, you're, you're generally trying to reduce the fat content. So the first thing I'd say is don't try to reduce it too much. Like, I, I think people just get burnt out on diets of like just chicken breast and tilapia and and the very very leanest proteins if you just allow a little bit more fat into the picture you know going for like chicken thighs instead of chicken breasts for example um or like 90 percent lean ground beef instead of 95 percent lean just that little bit of extra fat will help you get a lot more flavor into the dish um 
And then since you do, since you will still have less fat and you'll have a slightly less luxurious mouthfeel, the two things you can do to compensate for that is um, like add some collagen to it. So especially if you're making any sort of like stew or soup, uh, if you've if you've had like really good oxtail or really good beef ribs, that feeling of just everything coating the inside of your mouth, uh, that's from the collagen that is in the meat that breaks down as it cooks. Um, and the, the mouthfeel of collagen isn't identical to the mouthfeel of fat, but like if you get a little bit of it in there, you can fool yourself a little bit. Um, and I, I just think it's nice. I, I think it just feels very luxurious to eat. Um, so yeah, a little bit of collagen or gelatin. Um, and then like just to, to amp up the meatiness of anything, a little sprinkle of MSG. Uh, it's, I, I don't know why people are afraid of MSG, but it's, it's what makes meat taste savory. And like, dude, all of the things that people like, uh, in savory dishes, they like it because it has high levels of, of free glutamates in it in the first place. So like, you know, Italian food, for example, tomato sauce, tomatoes, ton of free glutamates, sprinkle some Parmesan on top. Parmesan, ton of free glutamate, yeah, ton of free glutamates. Um, something with a lot of dishes or with a lot of uh, mushrooms that's really savory. Ton of free glutamates and mushrooms. Um, most cheeses, for that matter. So just like cut out the middleman, get some MSG, sprinkle it on everything. It's it's great. It's good to go. I think the issue came from you know most people eating ad libitum, and in that sense, having a dish which which is extremely savory then you basically have tendency to overeat all the time i don't know if you've been to thailand but you have so many restaurants where they actually advertise it like on the front of the restaurant like no msg in our foods and everything and but they still put like a cup of sugar in every single dish they do (laughs) if if you're in if you're in thailand they're not putting msg but they are putting (laughs) an enormous amount of fish sauce which is basically the same thing but yeah same same with asian foods like most southeast asian foods they're gonna they're gonna have fish sauce in them yeah or uh like in in malaysia vietnamese don't um, don't cook without fish sauce every single oh, dish yeah, you have for, fish for sauce. sure uh in, in malaysia uh fermented shrimp paste that that's oh. one of the big things they use uh as well for for like sambal uh I don't know if it's Balachan or Belacan, one of the two. I don't know. But the, the sambal they make, they use uh, fermented shrimp. Same thing. Enormous amount of free glutamates. Uh, you hop over to Japan, soy sauce. Like, that's it's it's just salt and free glutamates and like a tiny bit of sugar. It's uh, it's so good. But yeah. Um, so where do you get MSGs? Amazon. All right. <laughs> um, okay. it, or I mean, like, if you have a, a decent Asian market near where you live, they probably sell MSG. All right. Uh, it's, I, I would strongly recommend it. And honestly, if you, if you don't want to think about it too much, um, you, can just, you can just make a salt mixture with MSG, just uh, 10 parts salt to one part MSG, mix it all up, just put it in whatever you would typically use to salt stuff, and just use that in, in place of regular salt. Uh, to just get a little bit of MSG and everything. And, and you don't need it if you're doing, um, if you're not trying to make macro-friendly foods. Like, it, it, once you get more fat in the mix, like, little MSG still doesn't hurt. But 
there there's going to be enough fat to transport enough other flavors. But yeah, for especially like cooking quite lean meats, just getting some more MSG in the mix helps everything so much. The other thing it does is MSG makes you salivate. Um, and so if you've ever had like really dry chicken breast or, you know, whatever else. I think we um, all have. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Unfortunately. It's, it's, it's one of the reasons it's not fun to eat is because it doesn't have that fat that like coats your mouth and you know, it, it kind of lubricates every bite to some degree. Uh, if you get enough MSG into the picture, it makes you salivate enough that like it kind of fools your brain <laughs> into thinking that what you're eating is fattier. Um, so yeah, man, casein for baking and MSG for savory dishes. Uh, sh- strongly, strongly recommend both of them. I'll try it, definitely. Last, like for people who eat dry chicken, and I think it's th- you're the first person to have spoken about it in brine the fitness it? industry. Yeah, brine it and poach it. Like this is, like yeah. I poach all my chicken and it stays so much Ooh, more juice. Yeah, all the time. H- have you tried sous vide? Yes, we had a discussion, remember, on Instagram about it. And, uh, I don't. Yeah, all right. <laughs> I that, actually, that, that like, was probably a while ago. Yeah, sous vide is amazing. It's just a time constraint, you know, like... If, I gotcha. Yeah, but it's amazing. Yeah, I, I love it. I have not tried brining and then poaching chicken. That, that's, that's interesting. I generally just brine it and bake it. It depends. If you're doing chicken thighs, obviously, like, mm-hmm. I would really pan fry because you have much more fat content yeah, yeah. that's gonna like uh, sear better but for for chicken breast when i'm really low in calories and trying to get those shreds uh, i really like to poach it because it stays so much juicier and and so much yummier Interesting. I think. yeah i'll i'll need to give that a shot but yeah perfect man it, yeah if if you are living the chicken breast life uh brining the breast Brine beforehand it. makes such a big difference Definitely. And the turkey. We had a, a turkey special, I remember, on Stronger yes. by Science. That was amazing. Um, coming back to our, to my original question about, you know, all the stuff that you do, uh, from my point of view, you seem extremely productive. So how do you... We could, how... just, make, we could just make this a cooking podcast. <laughs> we could, definitely. I'm sure we could no, speak we, about... We, we, can t- we can talk about other stuff. That's fine. So in terms of like a, a, a normal day in your life, how do you organize kind of, is, is it pretty structured or do you just like do what you want to do when you want to do? Yeah, I, I'm not, a, I'm not a structured individual. Um, I, so honestly, uh, the app release, so macro factor coming out, I, I promise I'm not j- just bringing this up to transition. Into no, no, plug. we will speak um, about it. But yeah, so we, we launched a, a diet app a little bit over a month ago. Um, and th- there has been a lot of work that has come with that, uh, like you know, a lot of uh, customer support, a lot of community building, soliciting feedback, planning meetings with the developers, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and that has forced me to keep a more structured schedule than than I used to have. If you would have asked me this like three months ago, um, I would have said I get in about nine hours of work most days. Uh, at some point between when I wake up at around noon and 3 a.m. Uh, generally, it would be about five hours, uh, yeah, like five or six hours during normal working hours. So basically, pop out of bed, get to work, uh, stop working around the time my wife stops working at five or six, and then get in another three or four hours after she goes to bed, go to sleep, repeat the process. 
Um, that that was that was the schedule I was previously keeping. These days, I, I have been getting up. Uh, an early day would be like... I've been getting up around 8 some days, which for me, that's fucked up. Um, <laughs> but, but generally waking up sometime between 8 and 10. Um, working, working pretty hard from then until approximately 6 or 7. Uh, and then sometimes still getting in another hour or two of work at night. Uh, that that's like kind of the normal part of the month uh, during mass writing time. Again, I'm not just bringing this up to plug. Uh, th- this is I plugged it already, so you can oriented. go. <laughs> oh hell yeah! Um, but yeah, so we we write all of mass during the first uh, during the first like two weeks of the month, and so for about two weeks out of the month, I keep the schedule I just described. Uh, during mass writing time, it's a free for all because I still have all of the other work obligations I have. Plus, between the four of us, we basically need to write a book uh, and do that every month. <laughs> so for 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 the two, first two weeks of the month, um, and, and to be clear, I'm not saying this is a good thing. Like I'm I'm not a big like rise and grind. Everyone needs to be working all the time type guy, uh, but start of the month for the first for the first like week and a half two weeks i'm generally putting in like 14 15 hour work days um and doing virtually nothing else with my life so uh yeah don't love that but it is what it is at this point Um, i mean i can definitely understand because from an external point of view when i see the articles the podcast mass and now macro factor i'm like well, mm-hmm. how, how does he manage it in a day and still find time for the wife and still have time for training and stuff like that? It's, I guess it's pretty challenging. I mean, the secret is I don't have time for training. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, at, at this point, at, at this point, I'm cutting. I'm not really intending to build much more muscle or get much stronger. And my body holds on to muscle really well. So I, I'd say... On a typical week, I may be lifting for about an hour and a half cumulatively, and that seems to be sufficient. Uh, otherwise, I just go for walks and play basketball. Speaking about Macrofactor, so for people who don't know uh, Greg and Eric, and there's other people behind the team, right? But I'm, I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've launched a... Yeah, there's, there's our... I, I need to get this out there because they are equally important, if not more so. Um, our developers, Rebecca and Corey absolutely incredible and then uh, my wife Lindsay handles all of the business and marketing related stuff um yeah if, if it was just me and eric if we were the driving forces behind the app uh it, it would be absolute dog shit and uh no one would know about it and no one would use it um yeah i mean we're we're the faces of the operation but it is it is impossible to overstate just how good Rebecca and Corey are. They're they're outrageous. Uh, yeah, uh, can't can't I can't possibly give them enough credit for for how good Macro Factor is. So personally, I haven't used Macro Factor yet, so I would like to preface that. What the fuck, that. dude? <laughs> Not yet. Jesus sorry, Christ. mate. <laughs> I feel like I'm being ambushed right now. I, it, it, am I putting am I putting our friendship in peril right now? I'm 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 a bit scared. No, I, I'm just kidding. It's it's all good. 
I have a client who does use it actually, and she loves it. Mm-hmm. And so, for people who are not aware, Macrofactor is a diet app. It could be related to other applications like MyFitnessPal or Chronometer or stuff like that. So basically, following your diet. There's actually a comparison on the website because I went to see with the different diet apps, so you can have an idea of what are the advantage of of Macrofactor compared to the other apps. Um, how did the idea of did you were you just like oh I'm gonna I'm going on a cut and I don't like the current application so I just want a better application I'm gonna design one or how was the idea behind it? Actually, no. So uh, so there there is a rich history behind this. Um, back in 20, 2015, I believe. Well, back in twenty fourteen is I know when I made it. Uh, and then we started selling it in 2015. I've, I've already started this poorly. <laughs> okay, so we used to sell a, a spreadsheet. We used to sell a spreadsheet called uh, the Self-Correcting Macro Plan or Self-Correcting Macro Program, something like that. Um, and the, the idea behind it was straightforward. You'd, uh, like there were cells where you would enter your weight. There were cells where you'd enter your calorie intake day to day. And... Um, it would like give you macro splits based on your preferences uh, within the calorie budget you had. And uh, it, it, what it would essentially do is it would take uh, your, your change in average weight over a seven day period. So like your average weight last week versus your average weight this week um, and look at calorie intake over that time span and how that affected change in weight. Um, and from that, be able to get a rough estimate of your energy expenditure. So, you know, if you were eating 2,500 calories per day, uh, and, and in that spreadsheet, I use the old rule of thumb that a, like a pound of fat loss was 3,500 calories. So if you're eating 2,500 calories a day and you'd lost a pound in your weekly average weight week to week, uh, that would therefore imply that your calorie in, or that your uh, energy expenditure was about 3,000 calories per day. Um, and then after that calculation, you could then calculate, well, okay, based on your desired rate of weight gain or loss, uh, how much do you need to eat the next week? And so have the spreadsheet. Um, we sold it as one of four parts of a $10 bundle, <laughs> um, just practically giving it away. And uh, it worked reasonably well under I would say 70% of circumstances so for example um, if you had relatively large shifts in water weight uh, it it was an absolute disaster so you know if if you go from a cut to a bulk and you put on five pounds in water weight overnight it's just going to assume like oh shit the 3,000 calories you just ate that puts you in a tremendous surplus and therefore to keep going like to keep gaining weight at the rate you want to you need to eat so basically yeah basically your energy expenditure is uh 1200 calories (laughs) be happy with that yeah yeah so it it, so it it handled scenarios like that really poorly um it, it was basically uh it was basically worthless for half the month for women who experienced uh like larger than average weight fluctuations uh around around their period um but if you didn't menstruate 
And if you were on, say, like a longer term bulk or cut, uh, after like two weeks, once like water shifts had been taken care of, it, it would uh, it would generally do a, a pretty solid job. Um, and so, like, you know, it, it was it was certainly imperfect, but it, uh, it it got the job done for a decent number of people in a in a decent number of circumstances. But you know, there there were obviously uh, some pretty substantial holes in the system. So that was always something that I wanted to improve because I, I made that like right after I got out of undergrad when uh, I was both dumber than I am now and also knew less about nutrition than I do now. Um, and it's, it's hard to overstate just how stupid I was back then. Uh, but it, yeah, so uh, as, as I learned more um, and as I realized how I should have had more imposter syndrome or no, <laughs> Wh- whatever. Yeah. I should have realized I needed to have, stay in yeah. my lane. I, I was, I was, uh, I was flying too high like Icarus. Um, eventually I decided like, I'm, I'm not a nutrition guy. This isn't what I do. I am a food guy. Like I'll talk about cooking, but nutrition now nah, I'll leave that for other people who actually, uh, focus on that and specialize in it. Um, so we dropped that as a product we sold in, I think, 2017, thereabouts, when, when we basically like redid the bundle that it was a part of. Um, but I, I always wanted some iteration of that to come back. And that was actually one of the things that I pitched to Eric, uh, Eric Trexler, when we brought him in to Stronger by Science, when he was in the last year of his PhD. And I was like, hey, Eric did you know that being a blogger is actually a lot cooler than being a tenure track professor? You can do things such as work on spreadsheets. Um, anyway, I guess, I guess but it's, it's not as good. It's not as good as being a vlogger, Greg. That is true. You know? That is true. We, we need to work on that. Um, yeah. So, so that was like one of the ideas that I'd pitched to him, like, Hey, have this little spreadsheet. Like it, it's okay, but it could be a lot better. Um, what if you worked on this? Because you actually do know about nutrition, so we could sell it with some degree of credibility again. Um, and, and basically, just like other projects came up, it just kind of stayed on the back burner. And then out of nowhere, uh, Corey, one of our developers who had previously used that spreadsheet, um, shot me a message on Reddit, and he was just like, "Hey, uh, I'm a developer. I liked your old spreadsheet." Um, I know several ways that we could like fix the the obvious flaws with it. Would you like to talk? Um, and I said, yeah, sure, absolutely. So uh, yeah, we we just went from there, and that's that's how it got started. Um, it, the The kernel of it is a very old, very imperfect product that the combination of Corey, Rebecca, and Eric um, got it working tremendously better so actually for the esti- because you can have an estimation inside the application right like for people mm-hmm. who just log on so that's one of my issue uh, with most people using my fitness pal uh, you know I, yeah. I used to put people on my fitness pal to to coach them and every time I was like don't care about what the calorie needs it's going to give you because it's going to connect with other devices and everything it just like stick mm-hmm. to what I'm asking you to do. And every time that, mm-hmm. oh yeah, but it told me that I needed that many calories and everything. So 
you have an estimation which is done in Macrofactor, I know, through my, mm -hmm. through my client. What did you base yourself to get to that estimation? Is it what you were saying, the weight fluctuation, or are you using Catch My Cardle or something? So it's, it's the same system that the, that the old spreadsheet used fundamentally. It's just like 20 times more mathematically sophisticated. <laughs> so um, we, we use a, a pretty sophisticated weight trending algorithm to make sure that you're not going to have those crazy overreactions to shifts in water weight. Um, it's, it's a continuous function now instead of just like a single calculation you run on a week-to-week -week basis. Um, there's there's a lot of sneaky little logic built in to deal with, say like, what if you don't log your weight for a day? What if you don't log your nutrition for a day? What are some kind of credible estimates we can plug in there to, to make sure that we don't uh, expect people to log perfectly 100% of the time, but still be able to generate um, high quality recommendations for them. Um, let's see, instead of the old like standard rule of thumb that like a pound of weight gain or loss represents 3,500 calories, we've gone in and uh, we, we work with a more sophisticated set of continuous functions there based on uh, the anticipated uh, split of lean versus fat mass gain or gained or lost based on uh, whether you're resistance training or not, your reported resistance training status, the rate at which you're gaining or losing weight. Um, so yeah, all, all of that goes into it. Um, but it, it is, at its core, the same general approach that the spreadsheet used back in 2015, but now it's... Uh, it. I, I was going to say it better reflects what I know about nutrition and body comp. It better reflects... Uh, what Eric knows about nutrition and body comp, which is way more than what I know. Um, and the, the more like mathy, like the super, super mathy part of it. Um, like I, I consider myself reasonably mathematically inclined, but a, a lot of that stuff came from Rebecca and she's absolutely brilliant. Uh, she has a graduate education in data science and machine learning from MIT. All so, right. um, <laughs> she knows what she's she, talking she's, about. <laughs> she, she's one of the few people I know who, who makes me feel like a complete dumb, dumb infant mental midget. Um, she's absolutely brilliant. So yeah, the, the team all came together and massively improved a kind of dumb product that I made a long time ago. That's great. So do you have a adaptation of the product to basically what you input, what's your input in the application and your weight fluctuation? Is it going to basically update itself to basically, for, I mean, imagine someone is going to take, I don't know, let's say uh, two kilos of muscle mass. Maybe his mm -hmm. energy expenditure is going to uh, increase slightly. Would that be basically recognized by the application and maybe like put your maintenance level a bit higher with time? So, so ultimately, any changes in energy expenditure should be reflected on the scale. Um, you know, so if someone does gain two kilos of muscle, one, just kind of like, as far as like a priori assumptions go, you shouldn't anticipate that would make that big of a difference because what the, the basal metabolic rate of muscle is, 
I know it's like six to eight calories per pound, so what, like 15 calories per kilo or something. So like, yeah, 30 calories a day, not a big deal. Um, but yeah, I mean, if uh, if someone's body composition dramatically changes or if their activity levels change uh, to, to a meaningful degree, um, that, that will show up in the interplay between their nutrition and what the scale is saying. Like if your... And the the app is is pretty sensitive to changes. Um, like it, it doesn't overreact to stuff, but if a trend develops and persists for say like a week, it, it's gonna pick up on it. So if you're, um, I mean, like I, I see it every month. Uh, well, so th- this won't make for great content for the people who are just listening, but I, I can show you right now. Like that, this is what my energy expenditure graph looks like All dating right. back to February. And I mean, I, I know what my what my exercise habits have looked like throughout that time, and it it corresponds with them perfectly. Um, like there there's even a dip every month during mass writing time when I am not, You're not training much, <laughs> basically at all. Yeah, I mean, like my my daily step count goes from like twelve thousand a day to like maybe four thousand. And just during that time, the the app picks up on it, and my energy expenditure uh, estimate drops like 200 calories, which seems about right. So yeah, I mean, it. I, I mean, ultimately, it, th- this is a physics problem. Uh, we're we're just dealing with energy in, energy out, and the relative energy densities of tissues being gained or lost. Um, and so the greatest. The greatest risk you have, I think, is overreacting to short-term fluctuations, which I, I think our uh, our weight trending algorithm takes care of pretty well. But I mean, otherwise, you know, if if you're eating the same amount you always have and you start gaining weight, you necessarily know that your energy expenditure has gone down. Or if you start losing weight, you necessarily know your energy expenditure has gone up. Um, so yeah, I mean that that's like the the fundamental principle uh, underpinning everything. My excuse for not using Macrofactor is literally because I'm trying. I'm on a boat for like the last mm-hmm. two years and putting on weight, and I'm literally at the point where I need to eat as much food as I can to put on weight because it's it's mm-hmm. becoming hard. But I promise I will use Macrofactor on my next cut to know where I'm at, and I'll make you a feedback about that. So will be very happy to use that because I hate my fitness bar anyway so <laughs> it would it would work well on a bulk yeah no I know it's just a really like it's I'm struggling even like eating liquid calories mm-hmm. and everything which has never happened in my life because I was a, a forever cut and uh, wanting to look you know shredded all the time but now I actually mm-hmm. want to become strong like you <laughs> so actually speaking about uh, the fact that you're a very strong man uh, so people who maybe don't know you have more than a 300 kilo squat I think it's even 340 or something like that so I'm in kilos. I don't know if you resonate in pounds. It's what seven fifty something like that. Uh, seven. My my best squat. My best squat in training is three forty seven. Okay. And uh, best best in competition is three forty. Uh, you also have a very strong bench. You actually bench more than my deadlift. So <laughs> we're around like five hundred pounds, something like that. Like two hundred and twenty kilos. Yeah, it's uh, 220 and a half. All right. And also, 
your deadlift is actually a bit below your squat, if I remember. I'm not sure. Yeah, it's uh, best is 332, 333. Why would you explain your deadlift being a bit lower than your squat? Is it the range of motion or the wraps? Uh, I've got incredibly short arms. Um, That's one of the things that helps my bench. Uh, (laughs) But yeah, I've I've got very short arms and I have um, a a persistent and pretty bad back injury, which, uh, you know, when my back is happy with me and I can train the deadlift pretty consistently, it responds pretty well to training. but yeah, I mean, uh, over the last 15 years, deadlift training has, uh, has come in spurts. It's been very start and stop. Um, as, as soon as my back starts acting up, like a, a, a very successful and productive training cycle gets cut short, max drops 50 pounds, rehab, start back yeah. again, maybe, maybe get back to where I was before, maybe a little bit beyond, get hurt again just repeat the process um it's actually funny because i've i've not heard you speak so much about injury uh and it's i i work with a lot of people who get injured through strength training and i help them getting back to to where they want to be and i was actually making a research about this podcast if you had spoken about injury i know you broke your forearm i think playing basketball not so long (laughs) ago right is that better yeah uh it's it's most of the way better um, yeah, I, I broke my wrist and strained a bunch of stuff in my elbow. The elbow's totally fine. The wrist, um, like flexion extension is good. Grip is pretty good. Uh, which one is this? Ulnar deviation. Still kind of weak, but I mean, whatever. I'm not doing that much ulnar deviation in day-to-day life, so who cares? You did have a post uh, about injuries, I think, in 2012 that I found, or 2013, with already <laughs> a pretty impressive list of injuries. So I was like, oh, wow. So he did get injured. Uh, so my question is, uh, are these injuries mostly related to strength training, or, are they, or did you mostly uh, hurt yourself during your football career and everything and and they translated after in your lifting career and can you get strong without (laughs) getting injured that's that's kind of my question so in in the long list of physical limitations i have (laughs) uh yeah really really i guess only the back was a lifting related issue um so actually i i can answer the first question for or the second question first can you get strong without getting injured Theoretically, I'm sure uh, it's I'm sure it's happened to people before. Uh, in practice, I think I think most lifters are at least a little dinged up most of the time. Um, there was a study out of I think it was Norway. It was somewhere in Scandinavia. I think the lead author was Ekblom, if memory serves. Um, but they they were looking at competitive power lifters um, and both how many of them reported an injury at the moment in time that they were filling out a survey, like the survey, and how many of them had sustained an injury within the last year. And something like 70% of them reported an injury at the time of the survey, and 87%, I believe, said that they'd been injured in the past year. And and that study did use a pretty uh, liberal definition of what counted as an injury. I think it was basically just... um, 
like any sort of like pain or physical discomfort that caused them to either like skip or modify training sessions. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that's, it's obviously not great. Uh, also a few years ago, um, myself and Andrew Patton carried out a longitudinal injury study in strength trainees, uh, that we just published on stronger by science and similar results there. So, uh, cohort of, I think about 350 lifters to start with, followed them throughout the year. Um, and of the people who weren't lost to follow up, like some people just stopped returning emails. Um, but of the, of the people who weren't lost to follow up, I believe in excess of 70% sustained an injury over the course of the year. So yeah, I mean, I, I assume you can avoid most injuries if you're pretty conservative with your training. Uh, or, I mean, honestly, just like if you're not trying to push your physiology to its absolute limits. Um, I, I think that in general, resistance training as a broad category can be very safe. Um, but I think that specifically training for the purpose of maximizing one RM strength and like say trying to be the best power lifter you possibly can be. I don't want to sound too fatalistic, but I, I think in injury from time to time is, is more or less in, in it an inevitability. I, I, I can't think of that many lifters. I can't think of any power lifters, honestly, who I know who've been in the sport for more than, I mean, not good power lifters who, yeah, I mean, everyone gets hurt from time to time. Um, most of the injuries aren't that bad, but eh, sometimes they are. (laughs) Um, so yeah, in terms of in terms of my injuries, uh, I, I I have a lot of uh, physical limitations. I would say like my left ankle is completely fucked. Um, I basically tore it off of my body playing basketball. Uh, I I rolled it and then was rolled over on it. And when I stood up, my foot was facing like three quarters backward. Um, just complete tib fib fracture. Uh, catastrophic and uh, so yeah that, that ankle is is not a hundred percent I also don't have a labrum in my right shoulder anymore uh, I basically ground it to dust pitching and played baseball when I was younger hit puberty entirely too young and uh, this was before there were pitch count rules for youth baseball and so there for a couple of years I was a full-grown adult pitching to children and uh so yeah, when, when we go to tournaments, um, it was never a good decision to pitch anyone but me. And it's not because I was that good of a pitcher. It's just I was like five years further along the physical maturation process than most people my age were. <laughs> um, and so I just I just pitched way too much, and now that shoulder's completely fucked. Um, is it very unstable now? Or is it just like it, It's really not. So... So that, that's the thing with, uh, with labrum issues in your shoulder. Um, your, your shoulder itself just physically is a relatively unstable joint. Um, like there, there's not, unlike your hip, your other ball and socket joint, there's not that much structure bone keeping yeah. it in place. And the ligaments, uh, like the, the ligaments um, forming the joint capsule of your shoulder aren't as thick and aren't as strong as the ligaments around your hip. Um, 
So just, just like structurally, it's a relatively unstable joint. And the vast majority of the stability for your shoulder just comes from passive or active muscle tension from all of the muscles surrounding your shoulders. Um, so yeah, I, I've never had any instability in that shoulder from uh, the labrum issues because all of all of the musculature surrounding it is is healthy. Um, when I do too much with the shoulder, it gets really, really badly inflamed. And then I basically just have to not use that arm for a few days for the inflammation to calm down. Uh, and, you know, when, when it was first starting, like it hurt a lot. But I, I think I've just deadened those nerve endings over time or have just learned to not care about it or not notice it. So um, 95% of the time that shoulder doesn't give me issues. It, it does affect my bench press training. Um, my bench responds really well to volume and the amount of volume that I can do before that shoulder gets really inflamed and starts barking at me um, is constrained. So I, I have to be a little bit careful with it, but in general, it's fine. Did you increase the frequency to spread up the, vol the volume a bit more? Yeah. 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 Okay. That's actually a, a conversation I wanted to have with you is, I think it was on the Stronger by Science podcast, you were speaking about training frequency and you were saying that mm -hmm. it is something which is, I mean, we have a lot of research on it and there's mm -hmm. not really any clear takeaways in the fact that volume is key and frequency kind of depends on the lifter because, you know, mm -hmm. like you have adaptations with higher frequency, but... How do you actually implement it? Because from your point of view, if I'm not mistaken, you think it's it's individual and people should try it out with themselves to see what they can, you know, recover from and, and, and have like a, mm -hmm. a sustainable approach. How do, would you implement that with people that you coach then? How would you test that? What data would you follow to know if someone's maybe more respondent to higher frequency or not? So, I mean, just like a, a basic troubleshooting process, the, the first thing and the most informative thing is if it's someone who has a, you know, somewhat extensive training history in the first place, I ask a ton of questions about what all have you done previously and what has worked well for you. And like not just named programs, but like if you've worked with another coach before, what did they have you doing? How did it work? Uh, if you did your own training for a while, what did you do? How did it work? Give me as many details as possible. And I think from that, you can start picking up on trends. So, you know, if, if someone, say, tried 531, uh, which is pretty low frequency program, and they say, like, man, my squat's never been better than it was when I was doing 531, then kind of my baseline assumption is like, yeah, you know, this this person probably doesn't need a tremendous amount of frequency for their squat. Um, and then if that's followed up somewhere else in their training history of like, oh yeah, I, I tried a three times per week squat program. Volume didn't even seem that high, but my knees hurt all the time. I'm like, okay, well that's another data point suggesting that like, eh, maybe high frequency squats aren't right for this person. Um, so yeah, training history is very informative. Um, and then, I mean, honestly, just like, so one of, one of the, problems I would say with with online coaching not not necessarily inherently but like the way a lot of online coaches do it is and, and this is honestly one of the reasons why I don't do as much anymore is I think a lot of people 
lock themselves into systems where you're trying to, as efficiently as possible, solicit a particular type of feedback that is necessarily kind of going to one-to-one affect the training prescriptions you give. And I think that there's a lot of value just in taking a more organic approach to coaching where you develop a relationship with the person you're coaching, not uh, a professional relationship, collegial, Um, and, uh, and just keeping lines of communication open and just on your end, having a journaling process. So you're, you're gathering as much feedback as possible, some objective, a lot subjective, and, and just over time getting a feel for both both the preferences and the feedback people give so you know if um if you have a client and their check-in day is on saturday and they're squatting twice a week and you know like let's say it's monday thursday and like the volume per session isn't incredibly high, but you notice like two or three times they just note in their check-in like, man, my, my quads are so sore. It's like, okay, squatted Thursday, Friday, Saturday, two days later, quads still quite sore. Uh, volume per session doesn't look incredibly high. If I tried to put this guy on a four times per week squatting program, like one, if we tried to go that route, we would definitely need to ease into it just because from a tolerability perspective, he's going to be sore all the time for the first three, four weeks. May not particularly like that. And two, like I, I do think that the... Sorry, sorry to cut you. When, the, you. when you say sore, are you speaking about DOMS or... or yeah, being, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, the other thing I was going to say, though, is I think the... I think independent of training history and kind of habitual exercise, I do think that the recovery process from from training is like individual and highly idiosyncratic. Like some people do just recover faster than others. And uh, and I think that it, it varies based on training style as well. Uh, but in general, I, I do think some people just simply recover faster than others. And I... I think that uh, kind of based on the aggregate of feedback you get from someone, you can get a pretty good idea of that. Um, And I find that people who just naturally recover quickly from training do pretty well on higher training frequencies and people who just naturally don't recover quite as well, um, you know, per muscle group or per main lift, just let them really hammer it once or twice a week and make sure they're recovered for for the next time they're going to do that lift um do yeah you, i don't do, know do you work with the things that could improve recovery so checking that their sleeping is enough their nutrition is on point and everything because we're speaking about how someone can recover faster than someone else but if they're not doing what they need to do to recover at one point that could have an impact on their recovery status and also, when you were speaking about you know soreness, I've I've experimented with myself, and I've I've gone to the you know full spectrum of like a one body part seven times a week, so really high high frequency. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't be having any soreness, but I know I wasn't recovering because my joints were not taking it, so I had to mm-hmm. take a massive step back. 
but yeah so do you do you work on that and do you think that um uh, don't you think that soreness might also disappear a bit with high frequency and, and adaptation to high frequency training i mean i i've so starting with soreness i certainly think it's adaptive but i i do think that that it i do think it just still varies person to person or even could vary like muscle group to muscle group within within an individual absolutely um so like i i used to i used to bench five times a week um i, I used to bench seven days a week but for, <laughs> that's for high frequency volume, five days. i would never recommend yeah, that but, <laughs> oh man when 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 i was doing kind of like bulgarian style training oh i God. had i think so many people from our generation got broken on bulgarian style training it's oh man it was it was the best thing i ever did <laughs> um let's see so i was doing i was doing 20 bench sessions a week <laughs> oh my god um, but anyway so um yeah so so i used to do yeah let's just go with the crazy stuff uh when i was doing bulgarian style training i was training three times a day six days a week um, and then I'd have on Sundays, I'd either get in one or two sessions. So 18 or 19, uh, or, or 19 or 20, I mean, uh, squat and bench, bench press sessions a week. Um, and like just, just muscle to muscle differences were, were pretty large, like triceps, never sore, uh, pecs just kind of like a low baseline level of soreness. And it was just like normal doms, but it wasn't bad. Like you know, you, you'd feel it if you palpated it or, like, if yeah. I flex my pecs kind of hard. Yeah. Front delts, very sore the whole time. Um, and and with squats, like, glutes were fine. Adductors, very sore to start with. Um, most of my quads, generally fine. Like, vastus medialis, generally fine. But, uh, like, my vastus lateral, vasti lateralis, whatever. I don't know how you pluralize that. Anyway, uh, my, my VLs, I would say on like a, a zero to 10 scale were like a four soreness the whole time. And again, not like an achiness, just like normal doms, but like they were sore the whole time. Were you already squatting with the large stance? Um, so I, I changed my squat stance just about every workout. Uh, <laughs> I, I just kind of troubleshoot it as I'm warming up and whatever feels good for the day is what I go with. I would be lazy to do so many sessions just because warming up, like already warming up once per day is too much for me. Like it just kills me. So, so when, like when three times. Oh my God. When you're doing really, really high frequencies like that, you don't, you don't really need to warm up anymore. Yeah. Like you're, you're warm the whole time <laughs> from the morning um, session. <laughs> yeah, no. So, so at, when I started that, so that, that took my squat from uh, 545 to 650. So from two, uh, like 247 to uh, 295 in the span of about 12 weeks. And um, yeah, so I mean, like when I first started, uh, like 180, 185 was reasonably heavy kilos. Um, you know, that, that was close to 80% of my max, like 75%, give or take. Uh, after doing that Bulgarian style training for like two weeks, that just became my first warm up set. And it, it didn't necessarily feel light on my back unracking it, but it's just like, 
your body's kind of always ready to squat when when you're squatting that much. So yeah, I, I did end up uh, saving a lot of warm up time just just by jumping straight into it. Um, so the, the, we yeah, were so, so we, yeah, soreness and yeah. Yeah, so we 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 did kind of get off track. I I do think independent. Uh, okay, let let's go to the lifestyle stuff. So I do think I I mean I definitely think. Um, Lifestyle modifications can have a notable impact on how well people recover from training. I think sleep is far and away the most important, um, followed by adequate calorie intake, followed probably by protein intake, either that or uh, like adequately handling and, and coping with just day-to-day stressors. Um, and and, I, and uh, another thing I think is pretty important, which... The, the research doesn't really bear this out yet, but whatever. I'm I'm fine to, to go against PubMed from time to time. I really think just day-to-day activity levels are, are important. Kind of like, you know, you could call it active recovery if you wanted to be a nerd. But like, you know, just being on your feet and going for a walk from time to time. I, I Which is personally like think that makes... Higher blood flow, difference. I think, better recovery, right? Yeah. 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 Uh, the, the research on active recovery isn't that great, but whatever i don't care i think it matters uh, <laughs> but anyway so yeah I, I think all of that stuff can make a difference um but i think that that absolutely pales in comparison to just innate inter-individual variability so for example um i mean like i've had especially smaller female clients handling squat volumes that like, I, I know that I would not survive if I did their program. Like, my body just couldn't take it. Um, and, you know, it wasn't just like, oh, I see small female, I give crazy volumes. It, it was like, it, it was an iterative process where, uh, based on their training history, they seem to respond pretty well to higher volume training. So, like, okay, let's start them kind of on the higher end of the normal volume spectrum. And then just based on, like, how they're responding to training, like, you know, they hit a plateau, you ask, like, hey, how are you feeling? Oh, I feel great. Feel fresh all the time. Like, well, okay, you feel good. You're not adapting anymore. Yeah, let's try a little more volume. (laughs) Okay, like, that's working well. It's working well for a while. Hit another plateau. How are you feeling? Oh, I feel great. Fresh all the time. Well, okay, let's try increasing the volume a little bit more. And and eventually you get to a point where... um, you know, they were training with a level of volume that their results suggested was very appropriate for them. But like, again, I know, I know myself, I've pushed, uh, I've pushed the extremes of the training I do in every conceivable direction. Cause for me personally, I, I view my body as an experiment. Like, you know, I, I try to put out the best general information to the people that I can, but for myself, like, I don't care if I get like quote unquote optimal results. I just want to try shit and see what happens, you know? Um, so I've, I've gone to every conceivable extreme when it comes to training approaches. So I, I know what my volume limits are and you know, some of these, some of these women were handling volumes two, three times higher than anything I could ever dream of touching. So yeah, I, I do think, I, I do think that, that volume tolerance is, just innately on top of everything else, vary quite a bit person to person. 
Coming back to what you just said, you know, like the fact that you consider yourself like an experiment in terms of training and everything. Why haven't you thought about using PEDs in, in that sense to try it out? Have you ever been like curious about that? Because I know I have. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I mean, I, I've definitely been curious. Um, the th so there are three things that keep me from from taking the plunge. The first is that I have a lot to lose. Like I, I have a pretty good life, and where I live in the United States, uh, if you if if someone busted you like busted a shipment like you know you're you're getting stuff sent to you to start a cycle which happens very often you're probably yeah you're probably going to get possession with intent like you can say like hey this is just my shit for the next 16 weeks but like if you get if you get an aggressive prosecutor they're not going to buy that and you know if if you have enough which most cycles would be enough you're going to get charged with possession with intent to sell which is uh like that winds you up in a lot more legal trouble than mere possession so like yeah i i one i don't want to take that risk like i know the vast vast majority of people who use gear never wind up in legal trouble from it but that that is the the possibility for if i got busted is um that that's more risk than i'm personally comfortable tolerating Number two is um, I come from a family that has familial hypercholesterolemia. Um, like knuckles men die in their 50s of heart attacks, all of them. Um, and like, you know, I, I try to stay active. I try to watch what I eat. Like I keep an eye on my blood lipids. And within a knuckles man context, they're pretty good. Within a general context, eh. Not that good. Um, the, the, the one thing that keeps my doctor off of my ass is that I have a tremendously high HDL level. And I don't even know why, but I'll take it. Um, anyway, gear, not good for your heart. Uh, me and my people have weak hearts. <laughs> so, um, you know, I, it's kind of priced in already. I don't expect to see 70, but I... Do I do want to see 60, you know what I mean? Uh, and I, I, I feel fairly confident that if I did gear for a decade or two, I probably wouldn't see 50. So yeah. uh, that, that's certainly a consideration. And uh, the, the last big one um, is that, I mean, I, I have a content business. I, I do things with my body, but I make money with my brain. Like that's... It, it is what it is. Such a complete and man. Not lot. <laughs> Do what? Such a complete man, physically and mentally. <laughs> yeah, I I want to go that far. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I, I have a content business. I have a research review. Um, my brain needs to work well, <laughs> and uh, that's already <laughs> that's already a struggle because your boy has a bunch of concussions. <laughs> so uh, yeah. My, my brain's already a little bit screwy um, and there there's not longitudinal evidence on this partially because I think it would be hard to go to an IRB and say like hey we're gonna find people at least within the US like drugs are legal certain places and like maybe they could do this study but at least in the US 
you couldn't go to your university's IRB and say like, hey, I'm going to find people who use illegal substances, uh, not drop a dime on them, but just kind of study them and follow them and see what happens to them. And my hypothesis is that it's going to be bad for them, but I'm not going to do anything about it. Like that that's not quite as unethical as like the infamous Tuskegee experiment, but it is it is in the same vein. Like we're going to find people where bad things are happening to them and um I mean especially if you if you try to get that through a psych department, it's now being argued that um like uh steroid dependency is a thing like it's a substance use disorder uh or like it can become one for some people and so like yeah i mean it's you would basically be saying i want to follow along observe the progression of a disease state and not offer treatment um like that that is uh and again Obviously not as bad, not as extreme, but that is ultimately like what was going on in the Tuskegee experiment. And so like that shit does not fly anymore. So like, yeah, I think, uh, I think a longitudinal study, yeah, maybe we'll never see one, but cross-sectional research looking at, um, uh, brain health, both structurally and, um, like certain, certain aspects of intelligence, uh, particularly verbal intelligence, seems to be lower in anabolic steroid users when you're, when you match for age, activity level, income, everything else. Like when, when you match for most of the relevant factors, you tend to see uh, reduced brain gray matter um, and, and reduced verbal intelligence. Well, can't say reduced. Don't want to use causal language. We're talking about cross-sectional cross-sectional research but those things do seem to be lower in users than non-users and uh yeah that's that scares me you know (laughs) like that's uh that that would be that would be bad for me so those are the three biggest things legality issues health issues and brain issues i really wish we had like uh, more research on these subjects but you know in terms of ethical reasons it's it's always complicated Mm -hmm. there's there's a lot of like actually uh, subjects that maybe you and me would like to have a bit more research on, but are either impossible to put in practice because you know they you can't do RCTs on on certain subjects and mm-hmm. also like in terms of ethical reasons. Um, Greg, I have so many more questions for you, but uh, we've been already more than an hour together, so I guess we'll have to do a, a second episode when when you find the time. Um, no, Bef- we, 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 we could do another couple. I don't care. Okay, let's let's do it. Um, actually, that was one of my questions. Um, what are the subjects that you wish we... Because you've been in the field of training and nutrition for a few years, and mm-hmm. how it goes is that you don't get so surprised by any new studies because it's usually something that confirms your current beliefs and everything. But have you been surprised by any studies lately, something that has you know tilted your interest and being like oh that's interesting it kind of like uh it, it's a bit of dissonant uh, cognitive dissonance with uh, what i have in in my brain you know i'll tell you i'll tell you the last thing that really surprised me and that is um the red light therapy research 
So I, I'd been getting Facebook ads for like can, red light therapy devices. You can actually for... see it here. Just uh to... Oh, you you have one? Yeah. <laughs> oh hell yeah. Uh but yeah, I, I'd been getting ads for red light therapy devices for like five years on Facebook. And it just it just set off my bullshit alarm. I just assumed that it was completely bullshit. worthless. <laughs> and then uh a, a red light therapy um, study came up in the mass journal sweep. I, I think it was looking at like recovery after resistance training or recovery between sets and like uh, multi-set volume tolerance, one of the two. But I was like, yeah, whatever. I'll, I'll take a peek at this, uh, see what it looks like. And uh, it, it had pretty positive results. So I wanted to see like, well, okay, is this a situation where it's just like one lab getting positive results where maybe they're getting some funding from a company that makes this particular device? Turns out, no, like there were like half a dozen different labs that were that were getting pretty positive results with with red light therapy. Um, so then I was like, well, shit, well, I was I was very wrong about this. Um when used before training, seems to improve uh, volume tolerance pretty well. When used after training, seems to improve recovery to a to a to a pretty non-trivial degree. Um, I have yet to personally experiment with it, but I mean, at, at this point, I would have a hard time saying that the research on it isn't. Uh, I was going to say promising, but that that would make it sound like there's not a relatively clear picture. And I think there is already a relatively clear picture that it that it seems to be pretty beneficial. Um, I'll get you in touch with the right people, then, Greg. Have some context. Sick. <laughs> but but yeah, no, I, I have I have no financial stake in in what I just said at all. Um, I don't own a device. I don't. I did not previously have plans to buy one. But if you're going to put me in touch with someone cool, maybe who's to say? <laughs> uh, but yeah, no, that that's an area where I just assumed that it was bullshit, but turns out to be good stuff. Um, the other the other thing which I guess is like somewhat conceptually similar that I came across recently was uh, ischemic preconditioning. Oh, and I, yeah. I still think, I still think ischemic preconditioning is dumb because I don't know who's going to do it in the real world, but I think the physiology is really interesting. So uh, for the listeners, um, if you wanted to improve strength endurance for say like your biceps or triceps, if you occlude blood flow to your arms, and not just like you're doing BFR and you're trying to cut off venous blood flow, but cut off all blood flow, arterial and venous, for like five minutes, uh, take the wraps off for five minutes, let yourself reperfuse, repeat the process twice more for three rounds of five minutes of total occlusion, and then you test your strength endurance, uh, seems to be quite a bit higher. Um, Studies I've seen suggest anywhere from like a 10 to 25% boost, depending what loads you're working with, larger relative increase with lower loads. Uh, and, and that seems to be a pretty reliable effect that is observed. And again, I don't think that that's practically useful at all because like, you know, who's going to spend 30 minutes before a training session? Also, you're working out in your garage, but like for people who work out in the gym, already people give yeah. me the eyes when I'm doing BFR. So if I'm doing like a, that protocol, they're going to be like, yeah. what is he doing? <laughs> yeah, so so 
who who's gonna sit in the corner and just like occlude blood flow <laughs> on and off for a combined total of 30 minutes before they touch the bar no one so yeah i don't think that's useful at all but i think it's really cool uh and and i found it surprising there's there's a quite a bit of research actually about eccentric training you know being actually mm-hmm. having some advantages and i've i was having this discussion with a with a group that where we discuss basically protocols training recovery everything and i was saying that i actually like i would like to see more eccentric training but the problem is again practical aspect of it and mm-hmm. i've i've seen some machines uh, i can't remember the name maybe x strength or x factor or something like that where basically mm-hmm. on the concentric you have one part of the oh so actually on the concentric uh the the weight is on a 45 degree angle and then when you go on the eccentric it goes like vertically and you have like a higher mm-hmm. resistance and i thought that that was really interesting and do you implement sometimes eccentric training and do you think if it was more practical to put in place it, it would be something that you would use more you know, I've messed around with eccentrics before. I, I tend to use the old-fashioned method of if I'm training with my wife, um, I'll just <laughs> have her push down on the bar during the eccentric and then let me lift it myself for the concentric. I mean, that that's what people have been doing for a long time yeah. if you want to talk about what's practical. Um, but yeah, I, I've, I've messed around with it. Um, I don't know. It's hard to monitor, it, right? It, yeah, it, it could just be the the method of, of eccentrics that I was doing. Um, yeah, since, since I had a partner helping me perform them, I had a harder time like staying in a groove and like feeling the target muscles that I yeah. that I was aiming to hit. And I've messed around a little bit with like overloaded eccentrics for say squats, just doing eccentrics to pins stripping a plate off, getting back under the bar, standing up, repeat the process. And I don't know. I, I never thought I got anything too interesting out of that. Um, one thing I'll note, though, is I do think that there's... So here's a crazy idea I have. I don't know if there's any evidence for it, but I think it's it's maybe worthy of consideration. Maybe not. Um, so I think... You know what? There, there actually is a little bit of evidence for it. So I think one of the things that potentially contributes to injury risk in powerlifters who are really, really pushing their limits is I think, and I don't have data on this part, but I think that powerlifters wind up with an out-of-whack eccentric to concentric strength ratio. So if you look at untrained people, they tend to have like what 30 40% more eccentric strength than concentric maybe down to 20% but like 20 yeah, to 40% 20 to 40, is the yeah. general range i kind of think that that's closer to like 10 to 20 for most powerlifters and i i again i don't have data on this but like i mean i mean i i know how my bench presses feel and i i've done overloaded eccentric bench presses um like i can when my bench press uh, with a pronated grip, like I, I bench more of a reverse grip, but when my bench press with a pronated grip was 455 or about, what is that, 215 thereabouts, somewhere in there. Um, when that was my 1RM, I tried to do, uh, or, or no, that's like 210. So yeah, my, my bench was about 210, 205, 210. 
and I was doing overloaded eccentrics with uh, 215. And so that, that's a small difference. We're talking about a less than 10% load increase. And I could only control it about halfway down. Like the, the last half, I just, I just assumed it would be fine. We're talking about a pretty small eccentric overload. And like the last four or five inches before my chest, I, I couldn't control it anymore. It just dropped to the pins. Um, and, and I felt the same thing on, on squats as well. Like, um, you know, I, I've never had an experience of where I couldn't control a weight down that I could still stand back up with. But like, the eccentrics are hard, man. Yeah. Like you, you get you get enough weight on the bar and I feel like I could probably control like when my squat's somewhere around seven, I feel like I, I could probably control seven seventy. Uh, I don't, I don't think I could do a controlled eccentric with 800 though, which would be like a four, 14% over my concentric one RM. Uh, and I think that that's a generalizable phenomenon. Like going to meets, watching people bench, watching really strong people lift in the gym. You see a lot of people where like they're bench eccentric, they're squat eccentric, fucking sketchy, man. Like half the battle for some people on squat is like, can they control the weight well enough to wind up in a good position in the hole to start their concentric? Absolutely. Um, same thing. Same thing on deadlifts too. Uh, like. Because most most powerlifters don't even worry about the eccentric on deadlift, and like I, I've talked to powerlifters who I think, and I don't know if this even makes sense uh, with with how muscle physiology works, but I think there might be some powerlifters who have more concentric deadlift strength than eccentric, because like I, I'm I'm a big advocate for controlling your eccentrics on deadlifts. Both because it's it's good for the equipment, doesn't wear it out quite as quickly, like doesn't fuck up the ball bearings on the bars. And so if you're training with someone else's equipment, be gentle with the bars. You're not paying for them. Um, <laughs> but then two, I do think there's I do think there's benefit to controlling the eccentric. Like I think you do get a, a meaningful strength and hypertrophy response from eccentric muscle actions. And so you know, if you're basically skipping half the deadlift, maybe don't skip half the deadlift. I think it's good for you. Um, but yeah, like I've given that recommendation to people who've said like, yeah, I, I pulled a single at 90% and I couldn't control it on the way down, which I don't know. That shouldn't be the case. <laughs> like you you should be able to gingerly lower your, your one rep. I mean, maybe you have grip issues and drop it for that reason. But beyond that, like you should be able to control anything that you can pick up on the way down. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think that power lifters have a tremendously smaller strength reserve than the, or eccentric strength reserve than the general population. And if you look at the hamstring strain literature with like field sport athletes, that seems to be a pretty, a pretty big predictor of injury risk. Like people with a smaller eccentric strength reserve are more likely to strain their hamstrings. And so there, there's a part of me that does think that like one of the big differences between general resistance training and powerlifting at a high level when it comes to injury risk is, is I think that, uh, if you get strong enough and you're putting, pushing your concentric strength to the level that you're really, really eating into that eccentric strength reserve, I, I think that that might be potentially setting you up for for a higher injury risk. Um, 
And so, yeah, I mean, that, that's like a four-step process, and I have indirect data for one of those four parts. So I could be completely full of shit, but uh, that's those are my those are my feelings on the topic. In terms of your current goals, though, so you're actually on a cut right now, and you're saying that you were not mm-hmm. training as hard. <clears throat> do you still have strength goals? Do Do you want to get stronger on on your lifts? Is it something that you see yourself doing in the future? So this this is tough for me because I've had a set of goals in mind for a long time, and I'm really close to three of the four. Or I I was previously very close to three of the four. I really want to squat 800, I really want to total 2,000, and I really want to bench 500. And I've gotten my squat to just south of 770, and I've gotten my bench to 485, and when you add up the best gym lifts I've ever done, you get uh, 1975. So on, on all three of those fronts, very close. I also want to pull eight. Best I've done is 735, not that close. Uh, who know who knows about that one um, but so here here's one of one of the things that's been a challenge for me over the years is that I have a hard time simultaneously getting stronger and managing my weight like when I'm training hard I have a voracious appetite and and honestly just like when I stay at maintenance I tend to not make gains like for me being in a consistent calorie surplus is basically a cheat code, and I just I just get stronger and stronger, and it's very nice. Um, so, like I I've been wanting to cut and lose weight, and I've been wanting to get stronger for a long time, and and basically I train hard, it's going well, I'm getting stronger, and then I just wake up one day and I'm like, dude, I just don't feel good. Like I'm way too big. Uh, getting around is tough. None of my clothes fit. I'm already wearing like a 2XL shirt. I don't, I don't want to be a 3XL guy. Like that's not me. Um, (laughs) and like I do other things in life outside of lifting. Like I, I've mentioned basketball already. I like playing basketball and like, I'm pretty good at it, but I'm not good at it when I'm 270 plus. Like I, I just don't have enough quickness or verticality to, to do much, you know? Um, so yeah, I, I'd always like, I think like not quite reach my strength goals because like (laughs) I wouldn't be willing to get quite as fat as I would need to, to get there. (laughs) And then like, I'd start cutting and I'd start getting weaker, but like a, a huge part of my identity was kind of tied up in powerlifting and how strong I was. And so, you know, first 15 pounds, fine. But then after that, the strength starts going, and then like I'd have a, a small identity crisis almost. Um, so you know that that that's when I was younger and not quite as secure in myself and, and who I am and what I want to do. And so at this point, uh, in my brain, I do still have the same strength goals that I always have, um, the, the, that I've always had. But I think kind of just on a personal level being being the really strong guy is less of a core part of like how I think about myself than it used to be um so yeah I mean like I am sure that by the time I get down to 200 I'm gonna be a lot weaker than I am now 
And, like, I didn't used to be fine with that. Like, I didn't used to be able to accept that. But, like, I don't know. I can now. It's fine. And I think based on what you were saying a, a bit earlier, you know, on the fact that <clears throat> in your family you have kind of uh, issues, heart-related issues, I'm pretty sure Lindsay would rather have you healthy and maybe at a lighter body weight than having you super strong i guess so that's also kind of an internal discussion i guess no you know Lindsay is far more tolerant than uh i deserve for her to be um and on no i'm I'm gonna put this on her actually uh i'm gonna be the asshole right now one of the things that i think uh encourages a lot of people like a lot of married people to lose weight is like their spouse kind of nudging them to do it like Lindsay's chill as shit like she <laughs> Uh, she likes me when I'm smaller. She likes me when I'm bigger. Uh, you know, it's, she, she has been, it, it, I, I can't even say understanding. Cause like it, it truly doesn't seem to bother her. Um, yeah, she's, she's very chill with like wh- whatever I want to do with my body. She's fine with. So, um, anyway, it's, it's, it's her fault that I haven't lost weight up to this point. Right. Uh, that's, that's a joke. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I, I don't I don't know, man. So realistically, probably like if I get if I get south of two hundred, which is what I'm trying to do, if I ever get back over two fifty, I will view that as a pretty substantial failure. And I I could be wrong. I, I might be selling myself short. I really don't see myself squatting 800 if I'm anywhere within spitting distance of 200. And and I, I could see myself edging back up to like 220 um, and like r- really making a run in the 220 weight class for a while. Uh, or, or pretend, I mean, I, I've got a 500 plus Wilkes already. Like, and I'm never gonna, so he, here's the thing. I'm, dr- I'm very motivated by round numbers. I was very stoked to hit a 500 Wilkes. I'm never going to hit a 600 Wilkes. So, like, who cares about Wilkes at this point? Um, but, yeah, so I, I don't know, man. Um, I don't want to say I've totally given up on those goals. I may get comfortable in the low 200s, slowly build back up to two, 220, and be just as strong at 220 as I was previously at, like, 255. That's that's possible. Um, based on my previous experiences, I, I somewhat doubt it, but we'll see. Don't you think you have a slight bias in thinking if I'm losing weight, I'm losing strength in a, in a sense, or I'm going to be not as strong? No, not really. Um, so I, I think for me, like, so I, I don't really make that connection in my head so much, I suppose. For me, honestly, um, a, a lot of it just comes down to like mechanics. So as I mentioned, I, I bench reverse grip and- That's mental. Dude, re- no, it's it's the only belly dominant bench press. <laughs> so the thing, about reverse, the thing about reverse grip is you can touch it way lower than you can a pronated grip. Like I, I, touch, I touch my pronated grip bench press somewhere in the neighborhood of my xiphoid process maybe like an inch below something like that i mean when my reverse grip form is really dialed in and i've got a great bloat going 
uh, I'm touching the bar maybe like three inches away from my belly button. <laughs> and so, dude, losing weight is gaining range of motion True. in the reverse grip bench press. And I don't know. Like, yeah. I don't think weight affects my pronated grip bench press as much, but... I kind of I kind of think that if I'm going to hit 500 it's going to be reverse grip and uh th- that's a different animal at 200 than it is at 250 260 uh and and for the squat a lot of it's just control man um like if if you get if you have somewhere I mean even at this point like I, I've squatted 765, but for me, if I get north of 650, um, it it scares me a little bit from a control perspective. Like the if you misgroove it or the like the bar whips in just the wrong way, you can lose it in an instant. And the more you weigh the more counterbalance you have against that. Like the, the more inertia your body has to kind of protect yourself against the vicissitudes of the bar. And so independent of a strength perspective, if on a muscle group by muscle group basis, I was just as strong at 200 as I was at 250, I still think I'd squat more at 250 just because the bar does isn't as scary. <laughs> I see what you mean. Uh, Greg, yeah. thank you so much for taking the time. I'll put all your links below so you'll have like uh, to Stronger by Science, Mass Research Review, Macro Factor. Um, I usually ask my guests a uh, last question at the end of the podcast being just a, an advice that you would like to pass along to, to our listeners and, and something that maybe has helped you in your life. It could be anything like uh it's not an easy question but whatever you want to put or just say like uh just go on stronger by science read all my articles and that will change your life <laughs> brother i'm i i'm not i'm not the device or the the advice kind of guy um i i don't think i have my own shit figured out so i'm not going to be telling other people how to do things uh msgs I don't <laughs> do what use MSGs. <laughs> yeah, you use MSG. Try baking with some casein. Um, if I were a listener, I would not take my advice. So uh, yeah, whatever. Just j- j- just get some MSG. That's perfect. I will just reiterate that advice. Perfect. Greg, thank you so much again, and uh, I hope to see you uh, another time for another episode. Yeah, thanks for having me on.